Just a reminder before we begin that um, adult nursery volunteers are asked to meet briefly in the sanctuary after the evening service. Beloved, the Lord calls us this evening to worship with these words from Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. What a blessing to know that the Lord is the one in whom we can trust. Let us seek Him together in a moment of prayer. Father, hear our prayer. Speak to our hearts. Empower us to worship You as You so richly deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. From God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing His praise together from number 8 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 8, we'll sing stanza 1 and then 3, 4, and 5. Oh. 
We confess the Lord together this evening with the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 69. Now this is a a plea for deliverance from the midst of a multitude of enemies who pursue the psalmist relentlessly and who in his eyes pursue him, hate him, seek to destroy him because of his devotion to the Lord and to his house. In other words, the the hatred that they express for the psalmist is born of his love for God. And so ultimately they are making themselves, have made themselves God's enemies. And so he prays both for relief from that pursuit, but also for justice. This is ultimately a psalm that speaks of Christ. Kids, I want you to pay attention to this. Well, we're reading this psalm. Look at how what David writes here is actually a prayer that fits perfectly the life of Jesus. Think about how, how he was so consumed with zeal for God's glory, for God's honor, for God's house. At the very beginning of his earthly worship, or his earthly ministry, he uh, cleansed the temple of the Lord from those who were unrighteously using it as a marketplace. At the very end of his earthly ministry, he did the same thing. Right? He was filled with zeal for God's house. He was filled with zeal for, for God's honor and for His word. And it was because of that that the leaders of Israel hated Him, plotted against Him, sought His destruction. But He didn't take vengeance. He entrusted Himself to His Father. David writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. 
I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim when waiting with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. My zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your, your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox. Or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy. And does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion. And build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Beloved, this is a song for Christ, but a song also for us who are in Christ, whose trials and difficulties and struggles the Lord knows, and whom He upholds, whom He answers according to each moment's need. So let's take up a portion of this psalm as our prayer. We find it in selection 128. Though I am poor and sorrowful, we'll sing all the stanzas. 128.
As we take up our prayer, um, that psalm certainly reminds us to pray for the church that is uh, persecuted and struggling. Certainly, if we look to resources like Voice of the Martyrs, we find abundant examples of how the church is being persecuted in places like China and the Middle East, Europe, but also on our own continent. In Canada, the church is getting hit on in various directions. Uh, our ministers in the URC have an email list where they share advice requests and prayer requests of various sorts. And One of the things that's been on there quite a bit lately has been the direction that their government is taking. Uh, new laws have recently gone into place that make it illegal to counsel against gender dysphoria, transgenderism, uh, to counsel people against conversion processes, uh, also to counsel that it is a sin to act in any kind of uh, sexual manner one desires, which means that preaching God's Word as it deals with those that portion of ethics is illegal. And uh, it's not a question of if, but a question of when. They will seek to make examples of folks. Uh, likewise, with the, the continuing COVID mess, um, one of our pastors that I'm, I consider a friend um, has been fined several thousand dollars for uh, refusing to prevent unvaccinated individuals from worshiping with the church. That's our ministers. And it's going, going on throughout the country. We need to be praying for them as well. So with that, 
Beloved, let's, let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we live in a world, as you well know, where rebellion against you runs rampant, where hatred for you boils just under the surface of even the most civilized society, and where the worldly who hate you strive to take every opportunity to silence your word and to shame those who hold fast to it. But we know that you are the God of justice and of truth. We know that you are the one whose throne is higher than theirs, whose kingdom is beyond theirs, who will never, ever be overcome by the enemies that stand against you. And we know, Father, that you, as we sang in Psalm 2, that you have triumphed over them already, that your Son has been established on high as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that He will one day soon punish those who reject you, those who rebel against you. But until then, Lord, we pray that you would preserve your church as it dwells in the midst of your enemies, as the reproaches of those who reproach you fall upon them. Father, we pray that you would cause your people, both far abroad in repressive lands like the Middle East and, and the Far East, China and North Korea, but also closer to home in Canada, in the United States, as your people face the hatred of the evil one, as they endure the slings and arrows of your enemy, Lord, make them to stand firm. And in love, with faithfulness, with joy, with boldness, teach us to continue proclaiming your truth and standing firm on our confidence in you. Knowing that one day soon your Son will return to judge all men. And knowing that as long as these your enemies stand opposed to you, they stand as targets to your justice. Lord, we pray that you would turn the hearts of many of those who today stand opposed to you. And we, we ask that you would make your church to be bold enough and, and faithful enough to proclaim the word even to them. That through that word, they might be conquered without, without a single physical weapon, without a single physical army. As you lead them, those who are today your enemies, to become your repentant children. And until the day that Jesus comes back, make your church, Lord, to stand out as lights shining brightly in the midst of this world's darkness even as we grieve the death of loved ones and the, the brokenness of the body and the opposition of the evil one, even as we grieve those things, Lord, teach us to rejoice at the glorious news that Christ has reconciled us to you and at the, the sure and certain knowledge that you who are sovereign and good uphold us and that from you no one can snatch us away. Lord, we pray that you would continue to expand your church 
despite the world's efforts. We pray that You would raise up ministers who love You, who love Your Word, who are convicted and stand firm on that truth by which men are saved. That You would raise up and equip elders who would shepherd the sheep with the tenderness of Christ, but also with the boldness that will allow them to confront sin and to protect the lambs and to rid the house of the Lord from those who are enemies within. And we pray that You would raise up deacons who love You and delight in You and and lead the church eagerly to serve You in a way that reflects the service of Christ. Father, to that end, we pray Your blessing on our office bearer training on Monday and on all of our opportunities to disciple and build up one another in the truth of Your Word and in the ways of Your church. Father, we pray that You would bless the missionaries that have gone forth. We think of Pastor Jansen and the new church work in Gig Harbor, Washington. We pray that You would bless them, that You would raise up leaders in their midst, that You would provide for them a good and and consistent meeting space for worship, and that You would lead them to those whom You have been preparing to hear and to receive Your Gospel. And likewise, Lord, we pray that You would raise up other works in our midst, that the Gospel might go forth with faithfulness and with boldness. Lord, we ask that You would watch over Your people in the midst of their trials and their hardships. We pray for those with medical needs and those with spiritual needs. We pray for those who are suffering and those who are struggling. Also those who are dealing with the the joyful difficulties of pregnancy and adoption and preparing for marriage. Lord, we ask that You would provide for each one according to their needs. And that You would provide comfort and encouragement through the saints together. Lord, You have knit us together as a family. And You have done the same for Your church throughout the world. And yet You know our tendency to nitpick, to criticize, to gossip all of which fractures the body that You have knit together with Christ as its head. Father, we pray that You would protect us from those inclinations. That You would draw us closer and closer together. That through the body of Christ, we might be encouraged and built up. That we might practice grace and forgiveness and forbearance and love toward one another. That in us the world might see something different and long for that different thing that is really the work of the Holy Spirit applying the Gospel to our lives. To that end, Lord, we pray that You would nurture us through the Word this evening and that You would disciple us through the communion of the saints throughout this coming week. That through our mutual ministry to one another and through the ministry of the Word and the Spirit, You would draw us closer to Yourself You would mold and shape us into the image of Christ. And You would teach us to rejoice in You in every circumstance. Lord, we ask this all in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look together to God's Word from Daniel, 
invite you to stand and we're going to sing together number 266. This is a rendering of Psalm 124, which is a call for Israel to openly confess that it's God and God alone who enables us to stand strong. It's God who gets us through all of those trials, all of those difficulties, and therefore, it is in Him that we rest together. So let's sing number 266. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to read really the first half of this chapter. We're going to read through verse 24, but we're going to focus on verses 14 through 23. Which I will freely admit up front is not the main point of chapter 2. However, I think it's a point that we do well to consider carefully as the church. Last time we saw how Daniel and his friends were taken captive into the land of Babylon. They were trained to be statesmen in Babylon, cross-cultural emissaries, as it were. After three years, they were tested. They were found to be better than all the wise men of Babylon. So greatly had God blessed them. What we read here comes almost immediately after that. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can tell me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that... Um, Sorry, just lost my place. Uh, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Amen. Congregation of God, beloved because of Christ. The point of this chapter, as I hinted before, lies not in what we just read, but, what it, but in what comes after this. And the first time I ever preached on that chapter, on this particular section, I pretty much ignored this section of the text. 
kind of focused on that latter half of the chapter where we see the dream of the king and its interpretation and its significance both for Babylon and for all the nations of the world henceforth. But then, I was young at the time. I hadn't known all that many really big crises. And this was a big crisis for Daniel, for his companions, for all who were considered to be counselors of the king. And I think after you've gone through a few crises, especially as a Christian, you start to appreciate the first half of this chapter a lot more. And that's why I wanted to pause there and consider that this evening, especially given the fact that we as a congregation have endured a fairly rough couple years. I praise the Lord that we're very united, but we've had quite a lot of illness. We've had to endure the death of some of our loved ones. We have had some struggles. And what we see here is that when God's people face those crises, if they're living as God's people are called to live, they're going to face those crises in a way that is so different from the way that the world deals with a crisis that the world will stand up and take note. And beyond that, not only will the world take note of the way they deal with that crisis, they will be able to see God's blessing in the midst of their struggle. And I think that's an important reason for which God caused Daniel to record all of these details that lead up to the dream and its interpretation. He wanted us to understand how Daniel and his friends dealt with this crisis and how they came about hearing God's Word, receiving the answer to their prayer. So what we consider this, this evening is how a crisis reveals the comfort that comes with the communion of the saints. That's our theme. A crisis reveals the comfort of the communion of the saints. And the first thing that crisis reveals is the confident faith of the saints, which is what we see uh, really in verses 14 through 16. But, but getting into that, looking at the context, we need to understand really what has just happened here. First of all, you might have raised your eyebrows a bit at seeing that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had these dreams and all of this happened. Uh, that's confused folks through the years. It certainly confused me the first time I studied this book. Wait a minute. So does this mean that Daniel and his friends were still students, as it were? How in the world did he have the standing to come before the king? Well, if we study the ancient documents, which I'm glad somebody else has done because my Aramaic is not that great, uh, we find that the Babylonians reckoned time a little bit different, especially in their formal uh, historical records. Everything was dated according to the reign of a given king. But the first year in which the king took up his throne was considered in the historical documents to be the year of the accession of king whatever. Right? So Nebuchadnezzar came to power, came to the throne at the death of his father Nabopolassar in 605 B.C. 
That was the same year that he conquered Jerusalem and took Daniel and his friends captive. And so they were taken captive in the year of accession of Nebuchadnezzar. The next year would be recorded as the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of like the year after the honeymoon, right? And every year after that would follow. So the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar is actually the third year he's been on the throne. And what that means is this happened very shortly after Daniel and his friends had completed their test. That's important. Because it means that the king knew who they were. Even though they were low in rank, they were among the lowest in rank, among the, the wise men and advisors, they had just aced his oral exam. And so he knew who they were. He would, he would kind of, his ears would perk up when he heard about Daniel. Now what had happened, as we read, is that Nebuchadnezzar in this year had troubling dreams. The dreams were vivid, they were confusing, and it made him stay up at night. He wanted to know what the significance of these dreams were. The Babylonians attached great significance to signs and omens. You'll recall the, the wise men, the magi, who came to bring gifts to the infant Jesus. They were descendants of the Babylonian wise men who were inherited later by the Persians and who gave great significance to the movements of the stars and the dreams that men had and significant events among men which, to which they attached spiritual significance. So when the king has this dream that so confuses him and so confounds him that it keeps him up at night, he's convinced that this is a major deal. This is foretelling something significant that he needs to know about, but he doesn't understand its significance. So he calls in all of his wise men, his enchanters, his magicians. But he tells them there's a caveat. I don't want you to just tell me what the dream means. You need to tell me the dream itself. Now there are some who say, well... Maybe he forgot his dream. He, he, he figured he'd know it if he heard it. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening is that Nebuchadnezzar was not stupid. He knew that anybody could come up with an interpretation of a dream out of whole cloth. And he was convinced this was a significant omen. And so he wanted to be sure that whatever interpretation was given to it was real. And so he said, okay... If you men know the, the mind of the gods, which is what you claim, you know the mind of the gods, you know the, the understanding of the universe, the wisdom that, that is hidden from men, then you should be able to tell me what the dream is. And if you can't tell me what the dream is, then you're a bunch of shysters. And I can't trust what your interpretation says. Now for their part, they think it's entirely unfair because no king has ever asked them of this before. You see, what the wise men were up to that point was basically the equivalent spiritually of what our weather forecasters are. We know that our weather forecasters aren't magic, right? They don't look into a crystal ball. No, they're just good record keepers. They keep track of the, the phenomena attached to weather, the temperature, the barometric pressure, the, high, the systems of highs and lows, what the radar is doing at any given time. And they correlate all of that and they see that when these particular factors are in evidence, this is what the weather tends to do. And statistically, they don't do too bad at predicting that way. 
That's what the wise men of Babylon did. When certain phenomena occurred, when certain dreams were, were seen, they kept track of that throughout the years, even throughout the centuries. And by that means, they were able to offer an interpretation that had a, a relatively decent batting rate. And you know, if you're vague enough, it looks a lot better than it is. But to actually know what the king dreamed, they couldn't do that. And they knew they couldn't do that. But when his advisors were unable, it says the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. You see, he had been listening to and making his decisions based on the judgment of these very men who couldn't tell him his dream. So not only does he have this dream that he considers to be an omen still uninterpreted, and not only does he have no one to interpret it, but now he feels like a fool. Because he has listened to these men. And clearly, they don't know the mind of the gods. Clearly, they don't have special knowledge. And so he's literally going to tear them limb from limb. That's where we come to our text. Daniel and his friends are confronted by Arioch the executioner. Probably some of the wise men have already died. Faced with this executioner, There'd be a temptation to kind of give up, right? Justice was swift in Babylon and there wasn't a great appeals court. So the temptation would either be to just lay down and die, or maybe to decry openly the injustice of it all, or maybe even to attempt to flee, which probably would have been fruitless, but you know, at least you die on your feet. But Daniel doesn't do any of that and he doesn't beg for mercy. Instead, we're told that Daniel responds with prudence and with discretion. That word translated prudence indicates both wisdom and restraint. He didn't go off on Arioch. He didn't try to get Arioch to do something that he knew he couldn't do. Instead, with restraint, with respect, with gentleness, he elicits from Arioch the whole story. To see if he could maybe work with what had happened. That's a precious example to us, by the way. Keeping our heads under fire. Not going off the deep end. And going off on someone who's maybe not even really the cause of our discomfort. It's been tempting to do that during COVID, hasn't it? Go into yet another store that demands that we wear those fairly ineffective face coverings, and we're tempted to go off on the person in front of us. They didn't make the rule. Poor souls making minimum wage to tell you to do something that they know you don't want to do. Right? So Daniel doesn't go off on Arioch. He just seeks to elicit from him the information that Arioch had. And then Daniel does something incredibly brave. Verse 16. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now that's bold for at least two reasons. For one thing, to enter into the king's presence uninvited was an invitation to die. Right? It showed a lack of respect, or it was considered to show a lack of respect. And that's when the king isn't already fired up enough to order the death of all the wise men. But beyond that, he asks the king to appoint him a time. And the king had just admonished 
his chief wise men for trying to buy time. And that's pretty much exactly what Daniel's asking. Give me a, give me a few minutes to see if I can figure this out. But, but notice what he offers. He offers to give the king exactly what the king has longed for. The king wants an authoritative interpretation of his dream. Daniel says, I think I can get that for you. Give me a time so that I can seek it and then come before you. Brilliant request. A bold request. No one else dared to ask this. And you know why? Because they knew that the death that awaited them was already horrific. But now if you appear to the king to be mocking him, if you get the king's hopes up and then dash those hopes, oh, he's going to get creative in the way he kills you. So nobody dared to do what Daniel did, but Daniel did because Daniel had something they didn't. He had the true God. He knew that he serves the God who called out the end before the beginning was begun. The God who raises up kings and deposes them. Who disposes of the future and the past of every kingdom. The one without whose decree nothing can come to pass. He served the God of Joseph. Who when Pharaoh was troubled by a dream was able to provide the authoritative interpretation which turned out to be precisely true and by which the people of God and the people of Egypt were saved. Now, Joseph knew Pharaoh's dream. Daniel didn't. But it's the same God. And if he's able to give the interpretation, then surely he can make known the dream. And thus convinced, Daniel was bold to approach the king and to seek opportunity. My friends, we ourselves are called to exercise that kind of confident faith. We live in a world that is scarred and broken because of sin. Romans 8 verse 22 says the very creation groans under the corruption of sin, as do we. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says that all who seek to serve Christ will face persecution. So we will face trying times in our lives. We can just accept that. And we need the confidence to serve God in the midst of those trials. For that, we need to ask God because He's the only one that can pro provide. In Romans 8, verses 28 through 29, we're told that He will work good for His people in all of their trials, in all of their difficulties. It might not be the way we expect it to work out, but it will ultimately be for our good and it will ultimately cause us to bear the image of Christ more powerfully. James 1 urges us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But James also asks or urges us to ask God for what we need. We can count it all joy to face trials. We can expect that God will use those trials for our good, but only if we ask for that. Only if we ask Him to supply what we lack. When Daniel did that, God gave him, as we'll see, God gave him exactly what he needed. We need to be willing to do the same. We need to be confident enough to do the same. Should war arise and governments oppress? Should illness and disease rack our bodies or those of our loved ones? 
Should conflict arise within our families? Or should we be betrayed by close loved ones? Should lawsuits and slander attack our good name? Should we lose our job and our source of income? Or fall short in our schooling? Our God still, despite the situation, stands sovereign. And He still, despite our suffering, is able to meet our every need. We need to believe that or we won't ask. We need to be confident of that or we won't take the necessary steps. But notice Daniel, he doesn't face this trying situation alone. As soon as the king grants his request, Daniel runs home and tells his companions. Not because it's juicy gossip, not because he wants them to join him in panicking, but instead he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed. In this we see Daniel taking refuge in the comforting fellowship of the saints. That's the second thing we see here. The comforting fellowship of the saints. Now seeking fellowship in time of crisis isn't natural. Often when we face a crisis, we're embarrassed. We we feel like there's got to be something that we... We can do ourselves to fix it, to get ourselves out of it. And when we can't, we're embarrassed by it. Other times, we're depressed by it. We're brought low. And we just want to crawl in a hole and lick our wounds and be alone in the midst of that crisis, in the midst of that destruction of our world. Or maybe we don't want to trouble others with our hurts, with our sorrows, with our difficulties. But when we isolate ourselves in a crisis, the result is never good. It puts more pressure on one person than one person was meant to bear. That deepens our isolation, deepens our desperation. It leads us to feel bitter toward those who aren't dealing with the same kind of crisis. Isolation always breeds failure. And therefore, God didn't create us to be isolated. God gave Daniel the wisdom to see that, and so Daniel seeks Christian fellowship in the midst of his crisis. And that's the calling that we have. In Hebrews 10, we're told in verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see the day drawing near by the way, is when you can expect persecution to arise, when you can expect misery to deepen. The closer the coming of Christ draws, the more desperate Satan becomes. So we can expect that we're going to face more and more and more challenges, crises, difficulties. But then all the more, we need to be meeting together, encouraging one another, building one another up, strengthening each other. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We read, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The apostle assumes that the church is encouraging and edifying one another. And he says, the the, the more it, the, the worse it gets, the more you need to do it. And so that's what Daniel does. He seeks the comfort of Christian fellowship, especially in prayer. That's an often underestimated aspect of the Christian life. That calling to uphold each other in prayer. James 5 talks about how prayer ought to be 
an essential aspect of the Christian's daily walk. Those who are suffering or sick should call for the elders of the church to do what? To pray for them. And such prayer is powerful, says James. It brings healing to the sick. It brings strength to those who are weak. It brings comfort to those who grieve and forgiveness to those who've sinned. But we need to ask. Colossians 4 verse 2. Paul urges the saints, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Because the apostle understood that prayer is how we seek the blessing of God that we desperately need. So he urges the people to be vigilant, steadfast in prayer. Bring the needs of the saints before the throne of grace. Ask God for blessing on the ministry that He's given us. Plead especially in times of spiritual warfare for the guidance and the strength to stand firm. And so Daniel and his brothers, considering the king's threat, they don't plot, they don't plan, they don't research, they pray. They fall to their knees and they ask God for the wisdom they lack. They fall to their knees and they ask God for patience and for receptivity in the heart of the king. They ask God to provide what is necessary, even when they don't exactly know what that is. And verse 19 says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Beloved, our calling is to do what they did. God has given us the great gift of being members of the body of Christ. Because none of us is complete standing alone. We are insufficient. All of us need all of us. When we share our crises within the church, our fellow believers help us. It's amazing to see. You feel so isolated and alone in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your panic. But you make it known to the church, perhaps out of desperation, and suddenly you find out all of these other people who've gone through similar situations, whose testimony about how God got them through strengthens you. And you find other people coming alongside of you who don't know what it's like to go through that particular crisis, but who are willing to weep with you and hug you and embrace you and be there for you. And you find other people who are spending days in prayer for you. And who are sending you notes to encourage you and remind you that they're seeking the help of the only one who's able to help. When we do that, we gain strength, we gain comfort, we gain hope as the Lord uses His church to build us up. And topping the list of the ways that He does that is through the mutual prayer of the saints. Do not underestimate the significance of praying for each other. If you're not on the prayer list, talk to me or talk to Carla and we'll get you on there. It's so important that we pray for each other. Read through the book of Acts and look at how often prayer is mentioned. Those Christians saw the magnitude of their calling. They were just this small group, a few thousand people, and they're called to make disciples of all the world. And everywhere they turn, there's Jews who hate them. There's Gentiles who hate them. There's powerful people who want to destroy them. They understand that they can't persist in one city, much less in all the world, apart from the blessing of God. And so they're on their knees. They're praying. They're asking for help. They're praying for deliverance from their trials. And God answers time and time and time and time again. Now, do we need the help of God any less than they did? No. The needs that face us are innumerable. 
if we don't pray continually, it's either because we underestimate the magnitude of the needs that face us, or we overestimate our ability to face them. Neither of which is good. Within this congregation, consider the folks who have faced the, the pain, the difficulty of losing loved ones to death and, and those who are dealing with long-term significant illnesses and long-term pain and division within their families or their broader families. Think about all the struggles that you know about and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We need to be working through that church directory and praying for each one of our brothers and sisters recognizing that God has united us to one another to that end. If we together will seek the mercy of the God of heaven the way Daniel and his friends did, then the way he answered them, he will answer us powerfully, perfectly, according to our need. Because you see, God always answers the prayers of his people. He always gives them what is good. He answered the, the prayer of Daniel and his friends with exactly what they needed. He revealed to Daniel... The unthinkable. He gave him the very details of the prayer that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his mind in the sleep of the night. Amazing. All the wise men in Babylon said that's impossible. The gods do not dwell with men. How can we know from them what they put in your head? And Daniel said, well, you can't. But the true God does dwell with His people. And the true God is willing to answer our prayer. It's just as true today as it was then. But I want you to notice, we'll talk about what God revealed to Daniel next week, Lord willing. But I want you to notice what Daniel does as soon as that prayer is revealed. You would expect... Given the fact that Daniel and his friends, their very lives are hanging in the balance. Given the reality that Arioch the executioner is about to destroy very painfully all the wise men of Babylon, you would expect that he would beat feet right to the throne room, right? He's going to get this over with right away. He doesn't. Because as important as that is, there's something even more important that consumes Daniel. And that's confessing gratitude. It's the last thing we see here. The confessed gratitude of the saints. Look closely at this song of verses 20 through 23. First Daniel confesses God's sovereignty. The one to whom belong wisdom and might. Who changes times and seasons. Who removes kings and sets up kings. Who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Our God is the one who has all wisdom, all might, all that we might ever need no matter what that need might be. And he reveals it to those who seek him. And so Daniel praises him. There is no one else who could do what you have done. There is no one else to whom we could have turned. You are the one, the only one who could save us, who could deliver us, who could sustain your people. That's an exceptionally important confession. By means of this prayer, Daniel and his friends confess that the wisdom soon to be revealed to the king was not theirs. It was from God. It was a gift from Him. It was provided to them directly by Him. 
And he's the only one who could do it. Should the church not be doing that same thing, making that same confession? Consider how God has provided for us. In James 1, we're told, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All of the good that you know in your life, every bit of it is from God. Your families, your freedom, your talents, your work, if you have it, God is the one who's given it. And above all else, He's given you the wisdom and the knowledge that are found in Christ Jesus. He's the one who showed you, whether at an early age or much later in life, that you were insufficient for your own needs. He's the one who showed you the misery of your sin and your guilt. He's the one who showed you the impossibility of you meeting your own needs. He's the one who revealed the gospel to you and softened your heart to receive it and implanted faith within you. He's the one who surrounded you with the people who discipled you and drew you close to Him and taught you what living a Christian life means, what relying on the Lord looks like. Having brought you to Jesus, He united you with the body of Christ so that no matter what crisis you face, you don't face it alone. No matter what trial, what difficulty, what unimaginable thing you endure, you're surrounded by those who with you love the Lord and who can remind you constantly where your help lies. If Daniel had reason to bless the God of heaven, folks, so do we. Daniel faced a crisis that highlighted his reliance on the Lord. But don't we face those all the time? Maybe they're not as flashy as this one. But they're no less real, no less significant to each one of us. It's relatively easy to fall to our knees in the midst of the crisis. It's a little bit harder to ask for others to fall to their knees with us in the midst of the crisis. But the thing we must not forget is after the crisis has passed, after the prayer has been answered, we need to confess to God. We need to confess to one another. We need to confess to the world. I didn't receive healing from that illness because the doctors were so smart or the medicine was so powerful. I didn't get through that dark night of my grief because I was able to just pull myself up by the bootstraps. I was not able to get out of that, that crisis when I was without work and without prospects because I had really good contacts. God is the one who supplied precisely what I need, when I needed it, the way I needed it. And He'll do the same for you if you ask. That's what Daniel's doing. That's what Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael are doing. They're reminding one another and they're confessing for all to hear. It is God who has given us what is about to save all the wise men of Babylon. And He is the only one. Brothers and sisters, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael faced the wrath of an ungodly king and as they did, their response revealed the comfort that's found only here in the communion of the saints. May God teach us to live in such a manner that regardless of the circumstances, 
This world will not doubt that we share their comfort. May men see clearly the confidence of faith that fills us, the comforting fellowship that strengthens us, and the confessed gratitude that flows from us. And if they do, then they will see and they will be amazed at how even in the midst of our crises, we are blessed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You have given us the precious gift of one another, of the church, by which we are discipled, in which we are strengthened, through which we are drawn together to Your throne of mercy and grace. Enable us to build up and strengthen one another in our times of need. And Lord, receive the glory that You deserve from us as we acknowledge that all the healing, all the help, all the joy, all the strength, all of it has come from Your fatherly hand. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let us acknowledge the blessing of that tie that binds us, our faith in Christ. As we stand and sing together number 447, Blessed be the tie that binds, we'll sing the first four stanzas. this evening is for the building fund. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this facility in which we meet and the blessing it provides for us. Help us to take good care of it and to use it in a way that brings glory to you and that builds up the church of Christ. And we pray that you would receive this offering that we take up as a token of our gratitude for the rich blessings you poured out upon us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this, this evening is number 1.
144. God is known among His people. We'll sing all the stanzas, number 144. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.